This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Jack Cacciarella. And I'm Aaron Prince. And this is Zoomed In. On this week's episode of Zoomed In, Aaron and I will start off by hitting the headlines talking about Biden's plan on student debt relief, and the crumbling GOP. After that, we will jump into an awesome interview with congressional candidate Maxwell Frost, who is running here in Florida and could make history as one of the youngest members of Congress ever. After that, we'll finish up as we always do with Tweets of the Week. Aaron, you ready for this episode? It's going to be a good one, Jack. So let's zoom in. So Jack, let's just jump in and hit the headlines. And I wanna begin by talking a little bit about President Biden's plan on student debt relief because it really impacts many people, including myself and many young people across the country. Now, as you know, on the campaign trail, President Biden has consistently reiterated the fact that he wanted to provide student debt relief for all public student loan borrowers for up to $10,000 of their debt. Um, He has also consistently said that he cannot uh, simply by executive order cancel all all the $10 billion of student debt that is out there currently. So what are your thoughts? I mean, what are you, how do you think this is going to affect young people? And I mean, why do you think it hasn't happened yet? Because if Biden said he could do it so easily, I mean, it just really takes a stroke of a pen to take $10,000 away. That's true. And I know that's, that's, that's a big stroke of a pen for you. Mm -hmm. Obviously it would be for me as well. Someone with student loans yourself. And a lot of our friends, that'd be a huge burden off our shoulders. That $10,000 is huge. Senator Elizabeth Warren, when she was talking about the need to cancel student debt and to relieve students, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders as well was talking about the financial freedom that's mm-hmm. offered to young people and allows people to move and work and change their jobs in an economy where they might feel stuck or constricted in their jobs and, and how important that is and how important it is for young people to be able to start small businesses and and to pursue other ventures, not because they are burdened and held down by the student debt relief. But why I think at this point, President Biden hasn't done anything or made any action yet, even though there have been calls by the people that I mentioned, Senator Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Warren has been the most vocal, is I think it's all about leverage right now. And I think that's what he's focused on. I think if he spends any more money from the executive armchair that he has, if there's any more money spent that is not focused to rest directly on his domestic agenda, I think Senator Manchin, Senator Cinema, as they always do, are going to be taking little notes. Like, okay, Joe, you spent a little money here. You got you know 
you got an extra bag of chips there. Maybe we got an extra tin of ice cream this week. It's like they're like they're like like it's a, like a grocery list. They are they are tracking tracking his budget. Although it is it would be amazing for young people across America. It would be great for our economy. It's something that they're going to hold him to. So I think as he's trying to pass this agenda right now, as he's worried about mansion and cinema, talking about the potential impacts of inflation and what a big spending bill is going to do. I think he's worried about first getting that passed, having the leverage there, and then moving into some of this executive action. Now, Aaron, you brought up how President Biden can't just cancel all those billions of dollars of debt and what like the constitutional aspects of mm-hmm. that are. Could you explain for our listeners why he's unable to do that, but $10,000 is something that he could get done? Yeah, I honestly, I don't even think that he's able to do the $10,000. I mean, I think that might even call into some constitutional scrutiny. And the reason I say this is because the Higher Education Act gives the Secretary of Education, um, in this case, Secretary of Education Cardona, the power to enforce, compromise, waive, or release any right um, to title, claim, lien, or demand, however acquired. And that's a famous, kind of like a convoluted way of saying Cardona has the power to waive student debt by executive action. However, Later in the Higher Education Act, it says that he can only do this in the performance of and with respect to the functions, powers, and duties vested in him by this part, this part being the United States government or the United States Congress. So the second clause in that kind of section makes many legal experts believe that the Secretary of Education and President Biden can't executively just sign away student loan debt they could only do so when Congress allows them to do so. And in this case, Congress hasn't allowed them to do anything and therefore they can't by themselves do it. Do I think President Biden can get away with getting, getting out 10,000, 20,000? Yeah, a small amount I think he can get away with and I think a court would find that constitutional. However, when you're waiving all student loan debt, um, I personally wouldn't do it but via executive order because I think there will be constitutional challenges to it I think it will go through the court system. And you have to remember that it's going to get to a court system with the Supreme Court with a 6-3 conservative majority, a conservative majority that does not support necessarily a extremely strong unitary executive, a a conservative majority that actually defers power to the legislature often and says that, listen, if the legislature, the constitution itself is very limited and the legislature should be the one that does a lot of these things. So I could see that if Biden tries to cancel all the student loan debt, He's going to get it to a Supreme Court that's going to say what you just did was unconstitutional. And, I, and I, I think I agree with you that part of the reason he's not doing it right now is leverage. I think another part of the reason he's not doing it right now is because the White House counsel is telling him, listen, this is not going to go well for you in the courts. And it's better not to do anything than to do something and just lose and have misery. it fail. Exactly. And have it fail. So I think as, the, we've said, as we've said many times before, being unsuccessful is the worst thing that correct. can happen in a presidency when Donald Trump was trying to cut the Affordable Care Act. And that that obviously failed. That was when he was at his lowest approval rating. Now, think about that lowest approval rating for Donald Trump. That's when he was at his lowest. Correct. I think as a political decision in 2022, when we're getting closer to a midterm and there's this promise of Biden having done that. And then when it's working its way through the courts, maybe the maybe the check hasn't cleared and the balance for all students across America. But do you think that's a political move that Biden could make that would help his success in the midterms, maybe a month out? No, I think it definitely can. And I think it could be a great idea. I mean, I, from a political standpoint, Biden could theoretically cancel all student loan debt three weeks before the midterm election, even if it's going to constitutionally fail. Why? Because 
it, the court system doesn't move that fast, right? And we're not going to have results until after the midterm elections. People will be happy, vote Democrat, whatever. I think that's a very backwards way of helping his, his standing. I don't think he's going to do that. I don't think he should do it. But and he's probably did, focused a little bit more on the relief for students than the political yeah, points. But it, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I mean, I think the best route here would be to go through Congress um, and to have Congress pass through their kind of reconciliation to the Democratic Party's ability to reconciliation to pass $10,000 of relief for every every student loan borrower, 50,000 or whatever your number is. Um, I, so, and I, and I think the relief needs to be very targeted. I can't, I can't imagine because you run into a lot of questions of like, okay, you're gonna release $50,000 of student loan debt for every student loan borrower, but how long, how, long in the past is that extent? Does that extend to people who took out loans 30 years ago when college was extremely cheap? Or does it only expand, uh, go back to the past 10 years, the past five years? And what about the future? Does it go to everyone in the future? Does it give them $50,000 of free college in the future? Or is it just for the past and then this, the future students are going to have the same issue? There are a lot of questions that need to be answered here. And I think it's, and I listen, I support Elizabeth Warren's idea of canceling student loan debt in theory, because I think it'd be great. It would help me tremendously. It would help a lot of students in America tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but in practicality, I don't think the idea has been fully fleshed out. And because of that, I think there are going to be a lot of legal, constitutional, and just purely political issues that the administration is going to run into. Well, then let me ask you this then. If you think that there are, it's not a fully fleshed out idea, it's something that needs working through, mm-hmm. is the best place to do that right now our Congress with a small majority in the House and in what is a sliver of a majority in the Senate for Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and, and, and Josh Gottheimer to argue over for three months as that's the media narrative? Well, I or like is Josh it better Gottheimer. For, <laughs> or, well, you know, Josh Gottheimer was kind of holding up a bill in the house that, you know, a lot of Americans like. Um, but but do you think that do you think that that's the place where we should be sending something to be figured out? Or do you think no. it's better to be done in-house by the Biden, by the Biden administration and, and, and figure that figure out the the legalities of it. Maybe they call you up, our brilliant legal mind, Aaron Parnas. You get on the phone with them and you say, Joe, this is what I think should happen with the bill. Do you think that's a better way to be spending time rather than letting it go through reconciliation, which as we know is a long, long process? Yes. And I think that's how it would happen regardless. I don't don't think that Biden would just say, okay, Congress, here's what I want you to do. Now go do it. I think- Because that's never works. That never works. (laughs) What, What I would like to see happen is the White House counsel in conjunction with either the DOJ or the chief legal counsel at the Department of Education um, put together kind of like a white paper or policy guidelines illustrating exactly what student what student loan relief is going to look like to what borrowers it impacts um, the breadth and the scope of this policy and how much it's going to cost the American taxpayer. If you do all of that and then get a CBO score on it before you even get it to Congress, really. Um, you're going to alleviate a lot of concerns. And I think that's the right way to go. And I think they could do that over the next year. I don't think it takes a tremendous amount of time because people have been studying this for a long time. So I guess we'll see. I mean, I, like I said, I support student loan debt for relief. I think President Biden, this is something that people don't really talk about, but he's already relieved student loan debt for disabled um, veterans and other Americans completely wiping their debt via executive action. And there haven't been any constitutional challenges to that thus far. So President Biden has done a lot thus far. He can and should take the next step to do more, but I think he needs to wait before he does that to flesh everything out. 
Um, so we'll see, Jack. We'll, we'll see. We will see. And, you know, as always, we appreciate the expert legal analysis. And before we hop into our incredible interview that I'm so excited for everyone to hear, we don't want to waste any time before getting into that. Aaron, I just want to run some thoughts by you real quick. Sure. Because you've been tweeting about it this week. I've been tweeting about it this week. And I think it's going to become a, a bigger narrative than people expect. And that's, you know, what the media always wants to run with, no matter what's happening in Congress, is Democrats in disarray. They're fighting. They're mm-hmm. upset. They're this, they're that. Kamala Harris spent $400 on on some, you know, cookware, which I, I don't know how that was a story. Right. That and Chris Christie being on television <laughs> is the problem with the media. That right there. Attacking the vice president for buying pots and pans. Okay, but here's what I really want to get into. You see Kevin McCarthy, who is supposed to be, you know, a leader in the House of the Republican Party, supposed to be someone with power, which is an absolute joke because he's not and he has no spine. And all he does is bend to Donald Trump. But there's a new group that he's bending his knee to, and that's Paul Gozar, and that's Marjorie Taylor Greene, and that's Lauren Boebert. Mm-hmm. Right. We saw Lauren Boebert come out this week at making, you know, let's just be honest with what they were horrible remarks to mm-hmm. Representative Ilhan Omar. She had been obviously, as we know, a, a bit of a problem, I think, is an understatement. She is one of the Maggidiots. She is one of the QAnon crazies of the GOP. Um, and she made these remarks and, and you've seen no challenge by Kevin McCarthy, you haven't right. heard him say anything. Um, Lauren Boebert actually demanded an apology from Ilhan Omar. And, and so you see that, you see no action by Kevin McCarthy to reprimand Lauren Boebert. And then you go over to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is constantly making trouble, who hasn't had committee assignments in months. And you, Paul Gozar, who just had his stripped of him. These kind of outcasts in the Republican party who you'd think with no committee assignments, with no real power, wouldn't be doing much, but they seem to be running the show because Marjorie Taylor Greene is telling what she wants from Kevin McCarthy and he's acting on it. Yeah. So what, what I'm seeing here is kind of a failure in the power structure, a failure in the power structure that, you know, Mitch McConnell used to hold so strongly and being able to get his caucus to do what he wanted, which is why Mitch McConnell was so effective and blocking legislation constantly. So even in the event that Republicans take the House in 2022, do you think they're an effective enough caucus to get anything done? Do you think Kevin McCarthy is the speaker? Or do you think the GOP collapses in on itself as they all grab at each other for power? Because that's what I'm seeing happening right now. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what 22, 2022 would look like um, if the Republicans take over in the House. I don't think Kevin McCarthy right now has the votes to become speaker if the vote were held today. Um, I don't know if he would have, I, it, I don't know. I honestly, I can't say one way or the other, and I don't want to make a prediction. Um, if I had to make one, I would say that Kevin McCarthy would be speaker because I do think he would coalesce, um, the Republican support behind him. And I do think that if Republicans take over the house, they're not going to just take over the house by one vote or five votes. It's going to be a substantial majority, unfortunately. Um, that, because that's just how the maps are looking and just how midterms typically go. So in that sense, I think he'll be able to have 10 or 15 of the Marjorie Taylor Greene caucus members just vote against him and he'll still have the votes. So I do think if I, if I had to predict today, he will be speaker. But I tweeted this out earlier and I think Kevin McCarthy is the most incompetent politician at politics I've ever witnessed. 
Um, and talk, we talked about this last week. He's bad at it. No, he's he's, really he, he's, he's very he's, bad at politics. Does a shitty job like, across the board. Like, listen, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert—they're shitty people, and they are—they don't deserve to be in Congress. But they're great at politics because uh, you see them. The media is talking more about them and their racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism than they are about than they are than they ever were about Kevin McCarthy. Right? Kevin McCarthy has not made any news. Except his little nine-hour diatribe, which he went spoke absolutely for nine nowhere. hours, and no one could find <laughs> a soundbite to play because it was all fucking bullshit out of his mouth that no one could understand. Correct. He can't produce a soundbite after nine hours of talking. That's when you know you're a truly bad so politician. I do, do I think the GOP is going to implode? No, unfortunately. Do I see cracks in the GOP? Yes. Substantial um, cracks. I, I do. I will say, if the GOP wins the House by only by less than five votes, or even less than ten votes, or 10, 10 members, then I could see a potential implosion happen. Because then it, it would I be it would be a lot of fun to see um, the Marjorie the QAnon caucus, the Sedition Seven kind of take on McCarthy. Because that's fighting against happen. fighting against what is supposed to be the establishment. And and before we wrap up, we saw some pretty. I don't want to say exciting because, you know, redistricting has been a difficult time for everyone, but Dave Wasserman has been reporting. It looks like Democrats just through redistricting alone were only going to lose about two and a half seats. Oh, that'd be great. Which is far better than Mm -hmm. we ever could have predicted. So it looks like right now we about have a, or we're going to have about a, a one or a half a seat majority as it exists now going into the 2022 midterms. So it will have to be a tough fight to hold our majority, but we are not losing an amount that we cannot come back from. And I'd like us to keep in mind the cracks that are forming in the GOP over the next couple of weeks where you see people fight and kind of postulate for power as they're kind of pushing each other to the side and your elbows being thrown on Twitter. What's going on with that? Because the Sedition 7 might more so than just trying to take down our country they might actually end up taking down their party and uh and that's the gop falling apart that's something that uh that's a positive that that is something we can look forward to and you know with that with that little piece of good news aaron i think we've hit the headlines let's go get into a fantastic interview let's do it this episode is brought to you by shopify Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today, Aaron and I are so excited to welcome our friend, an incredible candidate for Florida's 10th congressional district. That is Maxwell Frost. Maxwell, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for zooming in with us. We are so excited to have you. Yeah, thanks y'all for having me. You know, I've been watching the show and I'm just excited to be here. Well, I just want to, yeah, and I just want to jump right in and talk a little bit about your background and have our viewers kind of get to know you a little better. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about why you're running for Congress and why you're running for Congress so young. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to meet everybody. Uh, my name is Maxwell Alejandro Frost, uh, born and raised in uh, Orlando, Florida, South Orlando. Um, I've been an advocate and an organizer since I was 15 years old. 
Um, and everybody has, you know, story of self, uh, what got them involved in everything. For me, it's a very specific moment in my life. Um, when I was 15 years old, I, I used to go to arts high school and middle school. So I played jazz drums. Music is a huge part of my life. You can probably tell by some of the music posters in the back. And uh, before every jazz band concert, we'd go to like a Fridays or a Tuesdays or whatever A's kind of restaurant. And we'd get a bunch of junk food and we'd like load up on junk food and then go play the concert. So uh, we were at, a, I think it was a Fridays and we were just eating a bunch of junk food. And I remember we all kind of simultaneously looked up at the television screen and saw that somebody had walked into an elementary school in um, Sandy Hook, um, Connecticut and murdered um, just a ton of kids and teachers. And, you know, I grew up in a community that doesn't experience everyday gun violence. Seeing those pictures and videos of little kids walking, being marched out of their elementary school with their little book bags and their hands in the air. I mean, it left a huge impact on me. I couldn't play right that night. I was messing up the whole concert, um, the whole week. I, I just kept thinking about it and researching the victims and learning about it and like just, I couldn't understand what had happened. And I begged my parents to let me go to Washington, D.C. because I, I found out that there was a vigil going on um, that December for, for the kids. So I did some odd jobs, like mowed some lawns and stuff, and I raised the money to go up to D.C. and I went up to the vigil. The night of the vigil, we were sitting in one of these like Virginia hotels where the pools are in the basement because I guess it's really cold all the time. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the pool and we were kind of waiting our feet in the water. It was like a ton of all the all the teenagers and kids from Newtown and me from Florida. And across from me, there was a kid named Matthew Soto. His sister, Vicky Soto, um, was one of the teachers who was murdered. She actually hit her kids in cabinets. And when the shooter came around and said, where are your kids? She said, I'm not telling you. And he, he killed her. And seeing Matthew, I mean, he was just crying and talking about his sister, how much he missed her. And seeing a 16-year-old with the demeanor of a 60-year-old crying over his sister who was murdered for going to school completely changed my life. I mean, I literally ran back to my hotel room. I called my mom. I was crying. And I said... I want to fight the rest of my life to make sure that no one has to ever feel like Matthew feels ever again. And y'all know how it is. You get in the work for one reason and you find out there's so much that's messed up, but for every messed up thing, there's so many amazing solutions and even more amazing people working to make it, um, make it happen and fight for a better world. And so that's what got me into advocacy. Um, since then I started working on campaigns full time. Um, I, you know, I'm a young guy and I've had the privilege of working on a lot of different campaigns in a short amount of time, just kind of traveling around the country and doing a lot of special elections. Then I got involved with uh, ballot initiatives. So this is like the first time I wasn't working for a candidate, um, worked for the ACLU of Florida um, on Amendment 4, the ballot referendum um, to give people with previous felonies the right to vote. Um, and then after that, went to go work for the National ACLU, um, was one of the youngest staffers there um, on a program called Rights for All. We're pushing presidential candidates to be better on civil rights and liberties. And then um, then applied for this job I didn't think I was going to get for National Organizing Director of March for Our Lives um, and was blessed to be there for the past two years. And now I'm here. And, and, you know, there's really a million reasons why I'm running. Right. All these little experiences mm -hmm. that led up to this moment in my life. Um but early this year, I had a bunch of like organizers hit me up here locally who said, Max, you should think about running for office. We could use you. And I was like, hell no. I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I was like, I'm good. Like, I'm an organizer. I, I love working at March. I love working with like these students. And this is really like, this has been the best time of my life. Um, but they planted a seed. And, you know, me last summer, I spent a lot of time on the streets. Um, 
uh, organizing during the uprisings and just being close to a lot of horrible suffering and seeing that suffering is really what pushed me to a place where I felt like I, I believe my time is now um, to, to, to run for office. And when Val Demings announced that she was running for the Senate and that my home district, the place that I was born and raised in, an open seat would be you know, open and available. Um, we know that people, when they get into Congress, they stay until they're really old, right? A lot of the time, mm. these, these open seats never happen. So the opportunity being there and me speaking with a lot of folks in the community really pushed me um, to run. Because um, what I came to the conclusion of is that people were, you know, yearning for kind of new uh, leadership. And so that's why I'm running for Congress. Yeah, and that's and it's amazing because, you know, as, as young people, young people in Florida, um, you know, who have had a, an experience, uh, not exactly similar to yours, but, you know, that feeling of, of watching the TV and seeing something like that happen, and it hit so close to home, the, the feeling that you usually hear from your friends is, is hopelessness and a lot of fear, knowing that they're saying, well, I go to school every day, if something like this could happen to me, who's to say it wouldn't, and it's, and it's, it's terrifying, and what is so amazing about your story is you felt that and you said, I'm going to step up. I'm going to take some action. I want to see some change. And that's amazing. And that's so empowering and inspiring to young people that they feel like they can be a part of that change as well. And that they don't have to, they don't have to just feel fear, but they can actually go and fight for themselves uh, and, and their classmates and the people in their community. That's absolutely amazing. Thank you. So I have a quick, oh, I, I was, yeah, I was going to ask one of my questions is about the redistricting process. Now, Florida, is a hot ass mess when it comes to redistricting. And we saw it back in 2010 when we were battling through the court systems for the next four or five years um, until the maps were properly corrected. Now, redistricting is happening again. Um, and the maps initially didn't look that bad for Democrats, but latest maps that came out, I think yesterday, pushed it a little more to the conservative side and Republicans are trying to nuke like Stephanie Murphy a little bit and, and other Democratic seats. So how does redistricting look for your race um, and the 10th congressional district? Yeah. So for our race, you know, I think the consensus is that this district is just not going to shift that much. I mean, we are like Biden carried this district by like 26 points. I mean, um, there's a lot of like protected areas of the districts and like uh, like marginalized communities who mm -hmm. have a certain area. Um, and so I we don't see this district like becoming like a toss up or anything like that. In fact, and you kind of alluded to this earlier with Stephanie Murphy, we actually see it getting more blue. Um, more more of these areas from Stephanie Murphy's district um, being put into this one to maybe make her a bit more vulnerable. Um, the maps that came out yesterday or the day before yesterday from, from the House side and the four Senate maps all do the same thing. They make uh, they give us all of downtown Orlando and a lot of uh, these areas that are really uh, like there's a lot of like younger progressive like young professionals mm -hmm. kind of in these areas. So the, the maps overall are, are, you know, bad for Democrats in Florida. From my narrow vision of my race, um, they're, they're pretty good for District 10, at least for like me, right, as, as a young person in this district. I think it, you know, really creates a, um, a district of folks who have more in common than the previous maps. Um, so we're not really worried about it. I'm actually very excited of the prospect of having um, the whole downtown district in, you know, in District 10. Right now, we only have a little bit of it um, because we're just going to have a field effort that is insurmountable. Um, we're going to be out organizing everyone. And y'all know, I mean, knocking doors in a downtown area 
Uh, you just get a bigger like bang for your hour, mm-hmm. bigger bang for your buck. Um, and, you know, so we're really um, excited about these new lines, specifically for District 10 and specifically for my race. But obviously, there's a lot more to worry about at the state level. Yeah, absolutely. And you were talking about your run. I, I don't I don't want to share it. I want you to talk to our listeners. It's a it's a historic campaign. So if elected, what type of history would you be making as a young person in Congress? Well, I would be de- depending on who else, because we have a few other Gen Z's running across the country. That's true. I'll, yep. be, I'll be one of the, if not the first member of Generation Z in Congress, which, you know, I always tell people this isn't the reason I'm running. Right. Like I'm not running for like a world record, but it's an, <laughs> it's an important part of the story. Right. Because we just don't have any direct representation um, in government, especially at the federal level. I mean, the you know, there's so many like older folks in government and I'm not saying it should only be young folks, but there needs to be a diversity of not just opinions, but also experiences in life. You know, nurses, teachers, mothers, fathers, uh, families, young people, young like there just needs to be a diversity of not just opinions, but experiences in Congress. And, you know, I'm excited to be a part of this. I, I feel like over the past like six to eight years, we've seen a new vanguard of people saying, I can run for Congress. I can represent my community that I've lived in my whole life. I understand these issues. I can do this because I feel like growing up, you think about these positions and you think, well, I need to go to law school and get my law degree. Then I need to go work at a law firm or be a consultant or work on a campaign. And then maybe I can run and maybe I'll get the money and this and that. And we've seen like people all across the country running for office saying, no, screw that. Right. F that. That's BS, right? I should be able to run for office because of two things. Number one, I understand the problems going on in my community and I've been doing the work here. And number two, I'm a human being who lives here, um, who, you know, who is competent enough um, to go up and represent the folks in my community. And other than that, you know, I always push back on folks who are looking for some sort of deep rooted experience, 30, 40, 50 years um, to go serve in Congress, because I think Congress gives us a very unique opportunity to elect folks who come from all different walks of life, because at the end of the day, we're doing constituent services, we're voting, and then we're using our clout as, you know, a member of Congress to push things elsewhere. Um, This is one of the only type of bodies where we can have people from all over, right? I'm not running to be the mayor or governor or president where I'm like a CEO of an area, I'm running to be a representative. And I feel like those qualifications are just a little different and sometimes we conflate them. So it's really exciting to be a part of just this new vanguard of people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you, and you'd give a better voice to young people in Congress. Well, then, you know, the current youngest representative, which is Madison Cawthorn, uh, him and I have had some run-ins before. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think I'd love to trade a, a Maxwell for a Madison, get you in, as the face of the franchise for young people rather than him. Yeah. I'll also say too, for people watching Madison Cawthorn is not a member of Gen Z. Um, Just like throwing that out there. I have a lot of people in my comments all the time talking about it. It's off by a year, but I mean, it, it, there has to be a significant year. It's a significant year. So he's not a Gen Z. And that's all I'll say on that. That's the last time I'll ever say that. So uh, I want to ask, um, so many people who watch this podcast are younger people in high school and college who want to run for office, Me, myself included, who have been looking into running for office potentially soon. What have, the, what have the been the biggest challenges as a young person um, that you faced thus far when <laughs> announcing this campaign and over the next few months since? Money. 
I think money is the biggest one, which is funny because we're, we're actually doing, we're, we're fundraising the most out of all my competitors. But the reason I bring up money is just because when I first decided that I wanted to look into running, I said, I want to speak with the community. So I did about 200 conversations over the course of three months with just a ton of people all across Central Florida, organizers, um, advocates, pastors, my mom, right? Just like just different people and saying, I'm thinking about running for Congress for this seat. What do you think about that? And one of the first things, especially like political operatives and organizers, political people would always say is, money. Like, what are you thinking money-wise? Can you raise money? That's always, that was literally the first thing I always heard. Um, and people really doubted my ability to raise money. And I, I do want to say like, even, I, I will tout the fact that we've been raising a lot of money because that is like the barometer that people use in this game, but we also need to change the game, right? Like we need to come to a place in American politics where that's not the first thing people are asking, where it's not the only metric used to figure out viability and whether or not you're worthy enough to represent people. So once I'm in Congress, I want to fight um, for bold election reform, whether it's publicly funded elections or there's a, there's a bunch of different ideas. I think there's a lot of things we need to do to move to a better place. But with the current way things are, we're doing a good job, but money was the, is the hardest thing because I don't, I don't know a bunch of like millionaires or rich people I can call up and say, can I get a double max, right? Can you and your wife send in 11 grand? And then if I call 10 of those people, I got $100,000 in my first day of an hour. Like, I don't have the ability to do that. So what we had to do is just like, I did a lot of research talking with a lot of people across the country and figured out, you know, me as an organizer, what am I good at? I'm good at getting volunteers and cranking out calls and all that. So we do a lot of call time, which is like, has a really bad rap and call time isn't the best in the world, but we make it fun. I have my friends over almost every day, like five or six friends. I bribe them with wine. I always have a ton of wine for them. <laughs> and I say, listen, all you got to do is dial a number. And if someone answers, hand me the phone. We call it like quadruple dialing or however many people mm -hmm. there are. And it makes it so I'm always on the phone, giving pitches, speaking with people and trying to get donations. in. so we make a good amount of our money from call time we also have like texting and social media and email fundraising and all that. But I think people are really like vibing with the message um, that we have. And, you know, we're the, when I came into this, I really, you know, wanted to run a campaign that is focused on how do these big, bold ideas impact people's day-to-day -day life? Because the fact of the matter is that most people in my district cannot afford an unexpected $300 bill tomorrow. So when I talk about like these big, ideas and everything, what people really care about is just how the hell is it going to like help me put food on the table? How's it going to help me with my life? Like, I like these big names or whatever. Okay. But how does this help me? And so we've like, you know, really honed into the, uh, the, uh, um, into the strategy of really simplifying our message and bringing it home for people per se. But yeah, for young folks running for office, um, money is like the biggest challenge I feel like, and like money from the raising it, like raising money point of view, but also like sustaining your life. I had to quit my job working at March for Our Lives to run for office because everyone told me this is a full-time job running for Congress. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. I left my job. 
I'm not a rich guy, right? I just, I have some savings. It's pretty much almost out. I still have to pay a rent. I still have to pay for my food. Legally, I can't pay myself for my campaign until next year during qualifying period, which is like June, just a few months before the election. So like, I like Uber, like on weekends, I work concerts, I'm a stagehand sometimes, like I'm doing what I need to do to pay my bills. But that's another reality for young folks. Like if you're looking to run for at least like federal office, I mean, it's like, it's a full-time job. And even like for state house or state Senate, anything like that, especially in Florida, those races get really competitive and you got a lot of money. It's a lot of time. So I would just say if people are looking to running for office, think about your own personal finances. And I'm not saying that to dissuade you because I just went in and did it. And sometimes I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent, but I always figure it out. But I think like have a plan in mind, figure out how am I going to pay for things? What's time am I setting aside to work? And, um, and, and figure that out because it's hard and I'm still figuring it out. No, I mean, I agree with you. I've experienced the same thing when I've spoken to people. It's like, do you, how much do you think you can raise? You can raise 100,000, 200,000. What do you think you can raise? And it's always the same question of like, I don't know. Like, I've never done this before. Yeah. Um, so kind of pivoting off of that, um, you mentioned that one of the reasons you decided to run was this was Sandy Hook shooting and then your work with March for Our Lives. So Obviously, gun reform is a big part of your platform, but what else can viewers um, expect if, from a Maxwell Frost, from a Representative Frost? Yeah. Well, you know, we launched with four different issues. So gun violence is like one of them, um, but the other four are like equally as important to me. And um, the, the second one, well, back to gun violence really quick is like at March for Our Lives, something that we really tried to push on the national gun violence conversation um, it was taking a step back and seeing the issue holistically, right? Um, I think typically when we talk about ending gun violence, we think about the typical like policy prescriptions, background checks, banning assault weapons. These things are important. But the other thing is we have to look at why do people use guns to solve their problem in the first place? And how do we create a society where people don't feel the need to use a weapon to solve their problems. And these are like, you know, problems of condition. I always say, I feel like gun violence isn't really an issue in and of itself. It's a symptom of other issues, poverty, not having healthcare, um, not, uh, food insecurity, things like that, that push people to the brink. So when we think about it that way, really all of this ends gun violence, right? So the next one is universal healthcare. I believe we need to get healthcare to every single person in this country on the richest, one of the richest countries on the face of the earth. I believe by virtue of being born, the fact that you were born and you're a human being and you live right here means that you deserve healthcare. And it's not something that you need to earn. It's something that you deserve. So um, for me, what, what I champion is Medicare for all. I believe it's the most practical way to get there very quickly. It's a program we already run. It's very popular. I think we should simply expand it um, to the rest of our country. But there's other methods as well. And like, I'm really just invested in getting healthcare to every single person. I have hella health conditions and hella health issues. <laughs> and had it not been for my mother, who's a teacher who has good health insurance through her teaching, um, I'd have a lot of problems. You know, I was adopted at birth from a mother who didn't have enough money to go to the hospital was when I was in the womb. Um, and so this is something that's really personal for me. The third one is environmental justice. And obviously from Florida and, and you know, we're from a state where we are ground zero for the climate crisis. For folks who don't know, we have something called red tide. Tens of thousands of dead fish are being washed upon our shores every single day. I mean, it's like a horror movie if you go down to Southwest Florida. Um, it, you know, the Everglades are shrinking every single day. Um, all of our lakes, especially across the South, are being polluted by big sugar. 
Um, and un- unfortunately, like especially folks in the state legislature, Democrats just don't have enough power there to rein in the sugar industry. So there's a lot of problems going on, especially being someone from the South. So either way, there's a lot of like uh, federal protections I believe we need to pass. Um, I am for like the goals of the Green New Deal. I believe we need to be bold and think about how are we gonna solve this problem? Because the fact is the cost of not doing anything is far greater than the cost of waiting. And so um, I believe we need to take bold action right now. And then the last one is reimagining public safety. Last summer, I was beat, maced, arrested, jailed for simply going out to downtown Orlando and marching with folks and making sure people were okay. Um, and so experienced firsthand like police brutality in my own hometown that I was born and raised in. And I believe we need to take a step back and figure out how can we get resources into the community to stop gun violence and stop violence? How can we empower communities to do a lot of this work on their own? And how can we move towards a more equitable justice system? And we've seen, I mean, in the news um, recently with Kyle Rittenhouse and, and a lot of other things, there's a lot of reform and more than reform, reimagination that needs to happen with our justice system. And we, the first step is having those conversations. And so that's the fourth thing. So those are the four things, gun violence, um, universal healthcare, Medicare for all, um, ensuring that we uh, you know, move towards like environmental justice and then also reimagining public safety. Well, Maxwell, that, those all sound awesome. And I think our viewers are gonna have a great time listening to this interview and listening to your vision for Florida's 10th district and just for what you're gonna do when you're in Congress. So folks, if you are listening to this, go follow Maxwell on Twitter, go to maxwellfrost.com. Um, go donate to his campaign. Help every dollar a, counts. Every, young, every dollar counts. Help a young Gen Zer um, make history, essentially. So thanks so much for coming on, Maxwell. Maxwell. It was great. Thank you so much for what you uh, do and representing our generation. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Of course. Thanks, y'all, for having me on. And for um, just a heads up, it's frostforcongress.com. Uh, fr- fr- frostforcongress.com. Sorry. <laughs> Someone else took maxwellfrost.com, so I don't know what's there. But frostforcongress.com, <laughs> awesome. um, every donation counts. And yeah, thanks, y'all, for having me. And thank you for, you know, lifting up our generation. If you're vibing with the message, please check them out. And now it's time for Tweets of the Week. Our first tweet comes from Keith Edwards, and he is talking about a little TikTok that was made that I really love. So, Aaron, a a girl on TikTok apparently was matching with guys on like Bumble or Tinder Mm -hmm. or Hinge or one of those apps. She was convincing them to get vaccinated so that they could go out on a date. And after they got vaccinated, she just didn't talk to them anymore. I love it. She was getting people vaccinated, and Keith says, don't tell me one person can't make a difference. And you know what? I believe that. She's doing a great job. Uh, Our second tweet is coming from Michael Beschlosh, and he says, we are seeing more evidence that maybe it wasn't such a great idea to reduce the number of classes in America that teach (laughs) civics, democracy, and history. Yeah, I think we need a little bit more education in that department, especially for our members of Congress. Yeah, no, for sure. And Jack, our last tweet of the week comes from our resident Senator Big Bird, Big Bird for Senate. And what Big Bird for Senate tweeted out today saying, if Dr. Oz can run for Senate, then Big Bird can too. Big Bird for Senate. We're going to make it happen. 2024. I'm looking forward to it. I got a calendar, Aaron. I'm checking off dates. We're going to make this thing happen. And that was Tweets of the Week. And that was our show. Thank you so much to Maxwell Frost for coming on. Aaron, that was an awesome interview, wasn't it? 
That was awesome. I loved it. It in, in a historic campaign, a historic candidate, and so much more to come from Gen Z. Also, thank you to our editor, Adam Salton, who makes this show happen every week. Couldn't do it without you. One more big thank you to our listeners, to our Zoomers, Zoomies, the listeners of Zoomed In. We appreciate you all so much for, for being a part of this Zoomed In family. We couldn't do the show without you. Uh, and every week, we're so excited to bring you new episodes on Wednesday and live on Thursday. So if you like the show, please leave it a five-star review. Please tell your friend about it. And, you know, maybe send us a tweet. And Aaron, Aaron if people want to send us a tweet, they want to talk to us about the show, where can they find you? At Aaron Parnas on all of my social media platforms and on YouTube. I'm going to be posting a new video about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial coming up. So check it out. What about you, Jack? You can find me at JD Cacciarella on Twitter. That's J-D-C-O-C-C-H-I-A-R-E-L-L-A or Jack Cacciarella on TikTok. Or maybe you can find me making Joe Biden laugh once in a while. Uh, We appreciate y'all for tuning in, for Zooming in with us. And we will see you next week.